morning, friends. Southbridge. Glad you're here. We're going to make a big deal about Jesus this morning. It's our State of the Church address, but this is not a business meeting. Uh, you're going to receive some information when you leave. It gives you some businessy type information and also some lives that have been transformed uh, because that's what we're about as a church. Uh, if you're a guest, today's probably the best Sunday you could possibly visit our church because you're going to learn more about our church today than probably any other Sunday uh, that we'll have throughout the year at one time. And so we're glad that you're here this morning. If you would, just take a moment and look in your worship program even right now as we're getting started, uh, if you're a guest specifically. And uh, there's a connection card in there. And in that connection card, we just ask you to tell us you were here. And then there's a tent out front, an orange tent. If you take that out there and uh, fill that card out, take it out there. We've got some gifts for you and some different information on the worship program. I'll tell you about those gifts. Uh, Starbucks gift card to bribe you to fill it out. And then also uh, some other things that we want to do to bless some other folks. And so you can read about that in your worship program. But what we're going to do is we're also going to start a series today. And the series is going to be a Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to look specifically over the next four weeks of verses 16 through 20. So just five verses over the next four weeks. And we're going to break down uh, the last three verses phrase by phrase. It's what's oftentimes called by Christians the Great Commission. And so if you ever wonder why are you here? What is your mission? What is your purpose? You don't have to try and look within yourself. You don't have to try and find some magazine, go to some counselor. God tells us clearly in his word. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what it means. And then the Lord willing, we're going to flesh out how we live that out. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, over the rest of this month, actually. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to open up the scriptures and get into our State of the Church address and start this series in Matthew chapter 28. So let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to open your scriptures. Thank you that we get to gather together uh, with people that are like-minded in the sense that we want to know what you want for us. And I pray that you would be exalted today. I pray that everything that gets said and done by myself and by everyone that hears these words would be uh, glorifying to you. I pray that the words that we've sung in these songs wouldn't just be words that we sing because they sound good, but would be true of our hearts, would be true of our minds, would be true of our lives, that we would trust in you alone, that we would focus on you alone, that we would sing praises to you um, with our words and with our deeds. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Whenever I do a State of the Church address, I think it's the eighth or ninth one that I've done so far, um, I always get a little nostalgic because I think about our church and kind of how we got started. And uh, some of you know this, but most of you do not. Uh, My wife and I, when we moved here, actually never thought of planting a church in Briar Creek. We were uh, eventually led to the Triangle area. We thought we'd plant a church out in Chapel Hill. Um, Growing up, I didn't go to church and... uh, came to Christ and didn't really fall in love with the church, ironically, fell in love with Jesus before I even attended church, and um, eventually learned that that's his bride and you can't leave in love with Jesus and not love his church, but uh, at the time didn't really like it. People played games and all that kind of business, and so I thought if I'm going to plant a church, I'm certainly not going to plant a church in the Bible Belt, and so when the Lord led us to part of the Bible Belt, we, thought, we did some demographic studies, and if you didn't know, Chapel Hill is probably one of the most liberal areas in the Bible Belt. And so uh, I thought, if we're going to plant a church in the Bible Belt, at least we can plant it in like the belt buckle hole, right? Everybody falls through the cracks there. And so uh, we thought that we'd be out there and uh, came to this town, got introduced to a a friend of mine now, um, recently passed away, one of our founding elders, Danny Lotz, who was real familiar with Chapel Hill. And so he took me out there and drove me around Chapel Hill and looked at some different areas there. I called up Pastor Jason, who's our shepherding pastor now, and I said, hey, I'm thinking about planting a church in this triangle area. Why don't you come up? Would you consider being on the team? Come up and check it out. He drove up and down 55 over in Cary and Holly Springs and all that. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, I still don't know what he saw when he told me about his trip up here. I don't think there wasn't much there 10 years ago, if you remember that. And uh, somehow he still ended up coming. I talked to Danny Lotz later. And uh, he said, Scott, I drove you around all the areas in Chapel Hill that were the worst areas in Chapel Hill because I didn't want you to plant a church out there. And uh, we didn't end up out there, obviously. I remember sitting with a pastor 
um, over at Crabtree Mall, and we were sitting at Starbucks. He was wearing a Carolina Panthers jersey, and I was wearing a shirt similar to this, yuppie shirt, you know, button-down uh, shirt. And he looked at me, and he said, you know where you should plant a church? You know where you'd fit? There's this uh, airport area up here. My wife and I go up there for dates. I can't remember what it's called because Briar Creek's pretty new at the time. And uh, he said, there's a movie theater up there. You should go up there and check it out. And I think he was saying, you look like a yuppie. Yuppieville, go plant a church up there. And uh, we started praying about uh, being up in this area. And I remember driving around with Danny in his truck. We drive through the area, and I talked to him just about the vision of the church. And Danny and I didn't have a lot in common. We didn't like the same teams. He's about 40 years older than me. Uh, we didn't have the same preferences and songs. Didn't have the same, we didn't like a lot of stuff, but we were united by what we're going to be looking at in this series, the Great Commission. And we wanted to see lives transformed. And so I told him, you know, my story of coming to Christ. And I didn't really like church. I didn't like the idea of playing political games. I didn't like the idea of arguing about songs. I didn't like the idea of arguing about programs. Just how can we make the main thing, the ultimate thing, seeing lives transformed by Jesus, the thing that everybody focuses on? And so we started dreaming about that church. I remember asking him in the truck, I can distinctly remember, right over here on Glenwood Avenue, and saying to him, do you think that could happen here? And I was really contemplating it in my mind at that point. He said, yeah, I do. And I remember one of the early meetings we had as a church, uh, Pastor Jason brought some toys for the kids to play with, which ended up being a huge mistake. We didn't have any curriculum for the kids. They were just super loud. But we put them in a room. We had kids. And uh, they were over there and some willing volunteers with them. And Pastor Jed wasn't even a pastor yet. He was a lay volunteer. He was working on his Ph.D. at NC State and some science stuff that I can't understand still as many times as he's told me. And uh, he was leading worship for us. I remember him playing box drum that day. And Danny liked it. He didn't like the drums. But he liked it when Jed played the box drums. And We were just a group of people, and we were dreaming about what could be as a church. And we dreamt of a church where people would come and experience forgiveness. But not just by God, also by each other. And uh, we dreamt of a church where people could take off their masks and be real and talk about our junk and talk about our sin. Even though it's ugly, not to glorify our sin, but to glorify our Savior, they would forgive us of those sins. And that we'd be able to be real with each other, not play games like oftentimes people do at church. And I dreamt of a group of people that would be generous with each other, with their time, and with their talent, with the truth, and not just with each other, but then also with people they might not ever meet, with the city, with our, seeing our community impacted. And eventually we started talking about seeing a city transformed, seeing a city redeemed, came up with this idea of life change, that we'd want to see people connected to Jesus for life change. It was really just another way to express the Great Commission. And I believe that we've become that church where life change is the main thing. And we see it and we celebrate it like Pastor Dad was talking about the testimony this morning. And we've had those, I think, every other week just from CR, not to mention all the other people whose lives are being transformed in our church. And so I think that's happening. But how does it happen? Why is that taking place? And that's what we're going to talk about in this series. What drives a life-changing church? And today for our State of the Church address specifically, we're going to talk about the promise that drives a life-changing church. And we're going to be looking at the Great Commission because the Great Commission is central. It's so key. I love how John Piper talks about it. He one time was preaching a message on the Great Commission, and he talked about some people in his church that lived it out, and then he said this statement. He said, this is why Jesus came, talking about the Great Commission. This is why he was crucified. This is why he rose from the dead with all authority. That's from the Great Commission. And promised to be with us to the end of the age. That's from the Great Commission. He says, to create a people whose sins are forgiven, whose hearts are full of the love of God, and who are so emboldened by the triumphant Christ that they spend their lives with risk, and sacrifice and love to help others know and enjoy the greatness of Christ forever and ever. That's the Great Commission. And it's for every person who's been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ to then take that love and see other people transformed. That's what we're going to talk about in this series. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be. It's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark, and it's the very last chapter, the last verses we're going to be looking at. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. 
The context for this is obviously the whole book of Matthew. And so it's been the life and works of Jesus Christ from his miraculous birth, his temptations, his teachings, his miracles, his walking on water, his healings, all the authority he's had up to the point where he's betrayed. He's rejected by the religious leaders, which is ironic because they're the people that are supposed to be pointing folks to God and Jesus is the only way to God. But each one of us are enemies of his. And so it goes to the point where even he's beaten, he's murdered, he's mocked, he's ridiculed, he dies. And then he raises from the dead, which is the climactic point of the entire Bible. But it's interesting that Matthew doesn't stop at that point. Like if you're writing a book and you're stop, that, that's a great place to stop at the resurrection, kind of like Mark does. But Matthew wants to share with us more information. There's more to share because what's shared next is central. It's crucial. In fact, I read one author that said about the Great Commission that you can understand the entire book of Matthew, but if you miss these last few verses, you don't understand any of the book of Matthew. And he goes on to say it's the central point of all of the scriptures. So not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the central point. I would go on to say this is central to the Christian life. If you not, not only do you not understand Matthew, you don't understand the Christian life if you don't get these verses. One scholar that I read said this. says these five short verses, the five short verses that comprise the Great Commission are among the most important to establish the ongoing agenda of the church throughout the ages. But not just the church, it's each person that makes up the church, each member of the church. So let's look and see what they say. Jesus appeared to his disciples about 10 times at this point. So this might be about the 10th appearance. He does it over a 40-day period, the book of Acts tells us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, there's 11 now, not 12. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, is no longer with them. Went to Galilee. That's where the majority of Jesus' disciples were from. To the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. We don't know which mountain, but a mountain in Galilee. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have the whole Trinity in one verse. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then words of comfort. And surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age. There's a lot here in these few verses. We've got the context there in verses 16 and 17. And then verse 18 really starts the commission. It starts with the promise. That's where we're going to focus today. And then you get the command. We'll talk more about that next week. There's really one command here, which is make disciples. There's different elements of it, going and baptizing and teaching. And then you've got some words of comfort, another promise. And so you've got two promises with a command in the middle. That is the Great Commission. And today we're going to focus in on that first promise. Jesus said to them that he had all authority in heaven and on earth, that it had been given to him by the Father, all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to us that Jesus has given all authority in heaven and on earth? Well, it means at least three things. The first thing that it means is this, that we can have great confidence. The fact that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth means that we can have great confidence in the Great Commission. We should have great confidence in the Great Commission. But I find something interesting, and, and many people have memorized this, these verses before, but most people don't realize that the context here is a context of doubt. Did you catch that when we read verse 16 17? So then the 11 disciples went. Just because verse 16 says the 11 disciples went doesn't mean the 11 are the only ones that are there. Many scholars believe, as you try and picture this in, in, your, in your mind, that the situation that took place here, because it took place in Galilee, is the situation that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6. What was mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, is that Paul's talking, he's just told the gospel, he's just talked about the resurrection of Jesus, and then he says that there were over 500 witnesses that saw at one time Jesus resurrected from the dead. Many scholars believe, and I agree with them, 
that this is that moment. We don't know for sure. So perhaps it's the 11 and also just over 500 other witnesses, women, lawyers, tax collectors, prostitutes, the different people that were followers of Jesus. And they were there where Jesus told them to go, verse 16. Verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And so then the question becomes for us, who doubted? Which ones doubted? And why does Matthew share this with us? I think it's great that Matthew shares this with us because I think it, it's just another testimony to the authenticity of Scripture. Because if you're going to make this story up, why would you share that people were doubting? Wouldn't you have them there? Like if I were writing the story and I were just trying to convince people to believe it, I would write it in such a way that they were, there were just over 500, like about 5,000. 5,000 there that were really pumped up and they were ready to go and they just needed their charge. They just needed, they were like soldiers ready to go into battle. Or they're like, a, you know, the football team, they just needed the coach's pregame speech. I'll just get that over with so and go hit somebody. Like that, that's how I would have them there. But Matthew says we're there and we're worshiping, but the word for doubt actually means we're hesitant. We're hesitant in this. It only appears one other time in the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 14 when Peter walks on water and then he begins to sink. And then as soon as it's, Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And then the doubt is that he had little faith. And then they get in the boat and then the disciples worship him. It's interesting that both times you see this word, it's combined with worship. But why did they doubt? What were they doubting? Maybe it's just the fact of seeing Jesus. I mean, we can take it for granted. We've heard this story so many times. You've been to so many Easter services. You've heard of the resurrection of Jesus. You're like, yeah, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. Do you believe that? But imagine they saw him die, and then they see him alive. That's enough for some hesitancy. I had a friend who called me a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me a, a situation that had happened with he and his wife. Um, what had happened was um, one night she got a text message, that told her that someone that they knew that was an elderly woman had passed away, and she shared that with her husband. They were sad. They shared it with a couple other people in their family. The next day, he went to check the door. Somebody was on his front porch, and guess who was there? It was the woman who his wife had just told him the night before had died. And so he's got some disbelief as he opens up the door, and then he looks at his wife as he lets her in, like, what in the world's going on here? She went back. She had misread the text message. She had read the woman's name, it was in there, and, some, and you know, you read something really quick, that was, she read the woman's name, and it was someone that she knew had died, didn't read all the details of the text message, he said to his wife, how, did you, how could you even misunderstand this? Like, there's this woman, everybody who's coming into the house, he says, looking at this woman like, are you really here? Wonder and disbelief simultaneously. Maybe that's what they experienced. Maybe it was just so miraculous, it was hard to believe, even though they could see it. Some of us think if we could just see it, it's not seeing it. That's not what it is. It's when God transforms our heart. That's when faith takes place. Maybe they doubted Jesus, or maybe the doubt was in themselves. Did you ever think of that? Because Jesus has promised them that he's going to send them out just like he was sent by the Father in John chapter 17. He says he's going to send them out just like you sent me out. John chapter 20, I'm sending them just as you sent me. What did he tell them? They hated me. They're going to hate you persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Maybe they saw what happened to Jesus when he was crucified and thought, I'm not up to the task. And the doubt was in themselves. Maybe some of them had fear of the things that Jesus was probably going to tell them to do. What's going to come next here in verses 18 through 20, that you're going to go, and do you see how all-encompassing the Great Commission is? That Jesus has all authority. The word all is emphasized throughout this commission. All authority. And I want you to go to all the nations. 
I want you to teach them what? It says in the NIV, everything, but it's the Greek word all, all the things that I taught you. And then it says to the NIV, uh, to the very end of the age, but very literally in Greek, it's all the ages. So I have all authority. I want you to go to all the nations. I want you to teach all the things I taught you, and I want you to do it for all time. And there's just over 500 of them. No weapons, very little resources, and I want you to go to all the world. Maybe they doubted themselves. Think about how overwhelming that would be. Think about our vision as a church. We talk about wanting to see a city redeemed. This Sunday, um, between both services and kids and everything, we'll probably have somewhere between 750, 850 people that will attend uh, this weekend. Now, we know that not everybody who comes is a part of this church. You know, Some people are guests. Some people you don't know Jesus yet, which we're glad you're here. And I uh, hope you'll keep coming, and hopefully you'll place your faith in Jesus. Let's say out of that 750 to 850 people, and this is just a guess, there's 500 people that uh, are members of this church or are vested in this. They buy into the vision. They want to make disciples. And you want to see the city redeemed. And we tried to make that tangible a couple years ago. We challenged every member of our church, everybody who called Southbridge their home, even if you hadn't officially become a member yet, just to have one person that you pray for. One person that you pray for every year who is lost. Now, we know the statistics tell us there are at least a million lost people in our city. One million people. When I say lost people, I mean people that if they died today, they would spend eternity separated from God in hell. There's at least a million of them, and we're asking 500 people to just have one. One person you share with on an annual basis. One person that you're caring for. One person you're praying for, Lord willing, on a daily basis. So let's say you do that, and we challenge ourselves as a church to do that for the next 10 years. Let's say you do that, and every year that person comes to Christ, which we know won't happen. Maybe some people need two, whatever. At the end of 10 years, those 500 people will reach 5,000 people. That doesn't even put a dent in a million people. And so there's other churches and all that. There weren't other churches here. And they weren't talking about a city. Jesus says, all nations. There's just over 500 of them. How is that even... That's not even realistic, Jesus. How could that possibly... Can you imagine how they'd be overwhelmed? It's in that situation that Jesus then brings this promise. It's in that doubt. Doubting themselves, doubting Him, doubting the plan. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's what He sends them out with. So what does that mean that Jesus has authority? Most of us, we don't like authority. We could do a historic you know, survey of why we don't like authority and postmodernism and relativity. Let me tell you the, the real reason why we don't like authority. Because we're sinful. We don't like authority because we want to be the authority. And so the summary of it, with all, all the facts and historical charts and the rise of feminism, and then the sexual revolution, whatever, here's the reason. We want to be our own authority. And so we reject authority when it tells us what to do. But we really like authority when it's beneficial to us. And so if we don't like what the president's doing, we're smarter than him. If we don't like what the head coach of our team is doing, we're smarter than him. If we don't like the referees, we're smarter than them. However, if it's beneficial to us, that's awesome. We're so grateful for your leadership. And this authority goes both ways. Next week, we'll talk more about how we have to submit to it. It will happen whether we do or not, based on the Great Commission, the command that's given. But this week, we really focus on the emphasis of it's really a protection for us. It's really that nothing can happen outside the bounds of the authority of God. That God has authority over all things. And so it's beneficial. So think about how you've thought about authority. Authority is simply this. It's the right to use power. And so you can have power and not have the right to use it. Authority means that you have the right to actually use your power. 
And Jesus is saying he has all the authority. Well, think about authority growing up. Think about power growing up. What were things that you thought of as powerful? And I remember when I was a kid, I thought that superheroes were the most powerful. In my day, the superheroes were the Incredible Hulk, Flash Gordon, Wonder Woman, like all those folks. But the best one, Batman, the old Batman, not with the cool new costume, the old costume. Um, but Superman was the best, in my opinion. You know, faster than a speeding bullet. Stronger than a locomotive, could leap tall buildings in a single bound. He was amazing, pretty awesome. I wanted to be like Superman and would put a cape on and put whitey tighties on the outside of my clothes and jump off furniture at my house. And so I'm sure some of you, hopefully at least one other person did that. But you know what happened with Superman? I realized he wasn't real. And so then you develop and you think, well, dad's got to be, he, dad's pretty amazing because he can open jars no one else can open in the kitchen. And when dad goes to take the garbage out, he's carrying two bags of garbage that I couldn't even carry one of. But then what happens? You grow up, and dad starts to get older, and you catch up to dad, and eventually you surpass dad, and you realize that he's limited. So what happens for most Americans is we start to look at what are other things that are powerful. Money is powerful. Position is powerful. But it doesn't matter what analogy I give you. I could pick the richest person that we know of in the world. I could pick the, the biggest world figure. I could pick the president of the United States or North Korea or wherever you pick. ISIS, you pick whoever you think is the most powerful person. And here's the problem with every analogy I'd give you is they're limited. And so a superhero is limited by reality. Dad's limited by a human body. And money's limited because no matter how much you have, you can count it. And power is limited by position. And Jesus is saying here when he says all authority in heaven and on earth is that I have an unlimited authority. What's happening in this verse is actually an allusion back to an Old Testament passage in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel has a vision of God. And in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, he describes God. He says, I looked, thrones were set in place. The ancient of days that was God took his seat. That's the father. His clothing was white as snow. His hair, his head was white like wool. It reads like one of the passages from Revelation. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A few verses later, he describes the father's son. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God the father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, one that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Does that sound a lot like the Great Commission? All authority and all nations throughout all time. What gives him the right to tell people that are worshipping Buddha to stop worshipping Buddha and start worshipping him? He has all authority for all the ages based on his authority. The whole thing's based on this promise of his authority. And it's all authority to have all dominion and all rule and all reign over all peoples for all time because he's the king of kings. And it's not just here on earth. It's for all places. I met a guy uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, probably the most interesting man that I've ever met in person. His name was uh, Charles Duke. Charles is one of 12 guys who's walked on the moon. And uh, we were able to play golf with Charles, myself, and a few friends. And I remember we were standing out there at the first tee, and we were talking to him while we were waiting some, for some other people to tee off and uh, play far enough ahead that, that we wouldn't hit them, which is mostly for the people on the sides for me. But anyway, we could let the people in front of you go off. And we're standing there talking. I was asking him what it was like to be on the moon. You know, how did he become an astronaut? I'm asking him all these questions. And then it became our turn to tee off. And uh, he said, well, who wants to go first? I said, well, you go first. You did walk on the moon. 
proceed out there. That's pretty awesome stuff. He goes out there and, and he hits the ball. We start talking to him. Throughout the day, we're asking him questions about what it was like to be on the moon. And I remember one person said at one point, I can't remember who it was, said, it's really hot out here. And someone else said, well, you have been closer to the sun than the rest of us to him. And he said, well, actually, when I was on the moon, the people on the earth were closer to the sun than I was when I was on the moon. And I just thought, to be able to say, when I was on the moon, <laughs> how amazing is that? That guy's way cooler than me. And uh, sitting there talking to him about this whole situation. What did it look like to look back at the earth? And, and he talked about what it looked like. He said, you know, when you see a half moon in the sky, that's a half earth when you're standing on the moon looking back. I said, I did not know that. I have never had that experience. And uh, he started to talk about what it was like for him. And uh, he didn't know Jesus when he was on the moon. He was walking on the moon in 1972. You can look him up. Um, he didn't come to Christ until 1978 where he came to the place where every individual has to come to you to decide what are you going to do with Jesus? Because he makes these claims. You can't just believe in him. You're going to decide you're going to bow your knee to him or not. And he bowed his knee to Jesus Christ. He said, now when I look back on the situation, though, I remember looking at the earth, and it's just like Job described in Job 26, 7, where God hung the earth on nothing, and it's out there. That's authority, by the way. The right to use your power. And then he quoted Psalm 19. Psalm 19 in verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his works, the works of his hands. And so do you, who have been made in his image. And that's his authority. And that's his power. And God describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 about him humiliating himself and becoming obedient to death and even death on a cross. And then he talks about what it'll be like for Jesus when he's exalted, which is the Jesus that appears in this passage of scripture. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the everyone everywhere should bow their knee to Jesus Christ and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All authority, all nations, all peoples, for all things that he taught throughout all time, Jesus has the authority. So that means that anyone who has Buddha on the throne of their heart should take Buddha off the throne of their heart and put Jesus on the throne of their heart. That's why. It's not narrow-mindedness. It's his authority. So anyone who has Allah on the throne of their heart, any, anyone who has any of the millions of Hindu gods on the throne of their heart, take that off the throne of your heart, and Jesus, your niche about it, Jesus. Anybody who has money on the throne of their heart, anybody who has sex, anybody who has position, anybody who has recognition, anybody who has themselves, which is most people, to bow their knee to Jesus. And this is crucial. This is central to everything else that we're going to look at in the Great Commission. That Jesus has all the authority. And what that means to us is that we can then have great confidence in his commission because he's the one who has all the authority in heaven and on earth. And this authority, this power that he then sends us out with is so crucial. It's interesting when you read Luke chapter 24, Luke's version of the Great Commission, he says that I'm going to send you, you're going to preach um, forgiveness of sins and repentance to all the nations. And then verse 49, jump to verse 49. Verse 49 tells us, I'm going to send you with what my father, but what, what, with you with, with what my father has promised which is the Holy Spirit. That's the power for the believer, which at that point they hadn't received. Now, we receive it when we bow our knee to Jesus Christ. We accept Christ as our Savior. They had to wait in Pentecost until it came on them and they spoke in tongues. It says, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power, the Holy Spirit, from on high. So think about that. I'm giving you the most crucial message that anyone's ever received. There are people that are dying and going to hell, and people will probably die between the time I say this and the time you receive this power, but I want you to wait. It's urgent, but wait. 
Because you can't go out trusting your own resources. You can't go out trusting your own abilities, your own talents, your own numbers, your own money. You can't trust any of that stuff. Which has got to be incredibly encouraging to these 500 people who are being given this overwhelming mission. By the, I'm not even sure, is this really that guy? Because how in the world can you die and then race with all the doubt in their hearts? He says, you wait until you have this power. It reminds me of um, when we were planting the church. And uh, I remember sitting in our living room in Dallas, my wife and I. And my wife is in a red chair. We still have the red chair, so I can picture it easily. And she was reading her Bible, and I was laying on the living room floor. We didn't have any kids yet, so it was totally quiet in our house. It's hard to remember that, but we were there. And she was reading this passage in Exodus, and we were talking about planting the church. And we still weren't sure where we were going to plant the church. And um, she read Exodus chapter 33, and you can read it on your own. But what ends up happening is right after they make the golden calf and God's mad at the people and then he tells Moses, take the people into the promised land but I'm not going with you because I'll destroy these people. These people, they're so sinful, I'll just, I'm going to wipe them out. And so you just go and then Moses says, no, we're not going to go unless you go with us. We're not even going to, we don't even want to go to the promised land unless you go with us. And it became a prayer for us. We said, we don't want to go plant a church unless you're going to go ahead of us, unless your power is going to be on display. We're not interested in doing this in our own resources, and our own power. So it became a prayer for our church that God would then be the one that puts himself on display. And he has, and the way that we know is because of you, because of your lives being transformed. For each one of you, you've been changed. Because the Great Commission not only gives us great confidence, but it gives us great change. Lives that are changed. That's the second thing you learn from this promise. The second thing that it means that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth is not just that it gives us great confidence in the Great Commission, but it leads to great change in each one of our lives. We should experience great change by God. Not by learning new lessons and new disciplines in our lives, but by Him, that He actually transforms our hearts. Think about the people that are here. Think about the people that are hearing these words. Eleven disciples, you of little faith. Are you so dumb? The stuff that gets said to them in the Gospels. Peter, a guy who denies knowing Jesus to a little girl in a courtyard of the high priest, then stands before, after he receives that power in Acts chapter 2, the next part of Acts chapter 2, Peter stands before thousands of people and says, not being a coward, says, you killed Jesus and his blood's on your head. You killed God. He's not afraid anymore. The same people that in John chapter 21 are cowering, shivering in fear, behind locked doors because of what they saw happen to Jesus, then are praying in Acts chapter 4 in such a way that the place shakes. They've been transformed. The same guys that are denying Jesus are nowhere to be seen when, when the cross happens. They flee. They, they're all hiding somewhere. Are the ones who stand before the Sanhedrin and say, it doesn't matter if you threaten our lives, we have to proclaim the name of Jesus. The majority of whom are killed with a martyr's death. They become world changers. Their lives are changed. Because they then go out with the authority that Jesus, oh, Jesus has all authority and heaven and earth has been given to him. And guess what he does with it? He implants it in each one of us. The Apostle Paul prays that we would know this power, this authority. In Ephesians chapter 1 he prays about it starting in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he just talked about that inheritance through chapter 1. His incomparably great power, which he's now going to talk about for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And so the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in each believer's life. That's it. I'm done today. That's all. I mean, what else do you say? And so he should be changing our lives. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead 
And so then that's what we see as a church. We see people's lives being transformed. We've seen, you're going to get a book when you leave here today. It's going to talk about some of the lives that were changed at Southbridge. And there are going to be some financial things and some different stuff about our building and whatnot and that as, as well. But the fact that God would take someone who was without hope and without life and then bring them to have eternal life with him in spite of their sins is a miracle of God. And we've seen that happen in counseling sessions this year. Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that. I'm going to shut you down. We've seen it happen in our youth group. Uh, we've seen it happen in outreach events. We've seen it happen on Sunday mornings. I was reflecting on it this, this week as I was thinking about the state of the church address. We had a Sunday morning this year. We had the most people attend that we've ever had on an Easter service. We did it on the parking lot. I don't know if you remember that. And we had 40 people say that they trusted Christ as their Savior that day. That's 40 people. That's amazing. It's the most we've ever had in one setting before. And so that's exciting. Now, here's the deal. Some people will think to themselves, well, you're a pastor, so you probably pump up the numbers. I'm telling you. i just tell you the numbers that get said to me, for one. And it does not lost on me that some of those people might not be genuine decisions for Jesus. So let's just say that 20 of them were emotional, didn't understand what they were doing, uh, had something in their eyes, so they raised their hand. I don't know what was going on. But some, some other things happened. But 20 people trusting Christ? That's not 20 changed lives. Like, don't let that be lost on you. If 20 people genuinely convert to Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection of Christ becomes active in their hearts and in their lives, guess what they're going to do? They're going to tell other people about it. Because real disciples make other disciples. And so 20 people who then tell their kids or tell their spouse or tell their parents, and then families start to get changed. Whole family trees start to change, by the way, which can impact a whole generation of people. That's amazing. How many of them were genuine? I don't know. I know one of them was. I called this one lady. Uh, somebody had told me the story of what had happened because we were out there in the parking lot. You may remember a bunch of people out there and we're making noise and all that kind of stuff. This lady was going shopping at Target, saw the group of people that were over there, came over, and then our greeters are so welcoming and she came to the service. She sat down. I actually talked to somebody yesterday who said, you know why I come to the church is because when I first came, uh, Kathleen Hendrick gave me a big hug and she remembered my name the next week. So it was one of our greeters, one of the people just caring for people. So this lady came, same type of reason, and then she checked that she had trusted Christ on this card. Somebody said, this is the woman that came over from, from Target. I said, i got to call her. I want to know this. Because I wanted to know this. I wanted to know, did you go buy, like, to buy a basket and you went home with eternal life? Like, how did this happen? And so I called this woman up. And I, I'm very, I didn't ask her that. I did get to that question. I really want to know. But I, I first, you know, hey, I saw you were at church on Sunday. and I got this card. And she affirmed her decision. She wasn't intending on coming. She affirmed her decision. She prayed to see Christ. I talked to her like I normally went, hey, you should get baptized. You need to get in a small group. I'd love to have you come back to our church. And you follow up. The important thing is you get in the Word. People are really getting transformed. Or people that are in the Word. And so we talked through some of those things. Then I said, but can I ask you, what were you going to buy at Target? <laughs> I said, how does that happen? And she affirmed her decision. To trust Christ, regardless of what she was coming for from Target, which was candy, not a basket, by the way. But God's changing lives. It's not just salvation, though. Although it's that, that's huge. But I think through this past year, and I think about what the Lord's done. We've planted our first church. We sent out Pastor Josh. He's up there in Michigan meeting with folks today, and they've got close to 200 people that are there. I was able to go preach there this summer. They've already had people trust Christ. And so God's multiplying our impact. By the way, you impact that church. I know some of you individually send money to them. That's great. When you give your tithe here to Southbridge, we give away 10% of anything that gets tithed on. We tithe on that. Um, and so you're impacting them indirectly just by giving to this church. And some of you are praying for them. You're having an impact. It's an eternal investment that you're making. We've sent out missionaries. We had uh, the Killians go out, the Grimmies go out this past year. We've had several trips go out, several short-term trips. I think it was four trips to Panama. Uh, we've got a trip to Madagascar coming up. If you're interested, you can email our office and get involved in that. That's changing people's lives. When I think back of the, the sermon series we've done, probably the one that I remember the, the most, and that's right, I don't remember even all of my own messages, so don't feel guilty um, if you're one of those people too. But the one I remember the most was a series we called Making the Most of. 
Because what happened for several folks, at least the emails that I got sent, Facebook messages I got, where the light went off for a lot of people. That you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary or somehow paid to do ministry in order to be living out the Great Commission. And uh, I remember one woman came to me in the lobby of our church and told me we were starting to renovate our house and we didn't know what to do with this one section of the house. And so we renovated it to be a dance studio because she was a dance instructor. And she said so that we could give lessons to the kids in our community for free. And then she could use it as a platform to share Jesus with the families in the community. Not just the kids, but the parents and the, and the different folks that are there. It was like the light went off. Guess what? That's life change. There was uh, one person who had emailed me in our church and said that they had honestly thought to themselves, because they have a mental illness, so that God could never use them. And then they realized that it wasn't them. God was the one doing the work. So they became available. Which, by the way, one of the key things the disciples do in this passage is they just show up where they're supposed to be. God told them, go to this mountain. What if they don't show up? Being available, that's life change. So it's not just salvation. It can be what seems to be small steps of faith for some of us. Or huge steps for others. Have you had people this year uh, forgive people of sins? We've had spouses forgive of adultery. That's not one person. So if you know that I know of your situation, I'm not necessarily talking about you. This is multiple stories throughout our church. Someone cheats and then you forgive. That's, by the way, that's impossible forgiveness. But... When you have the same power at work in your life that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, guess what? Impossible things can happen. And so people do that. That's life change. And those times, it's like God's flexing his muscles. It's like when Jesus says, calm down water, and it's glassy smooth. But that's not the only way that God demonstrates his power. It'd be unfair and it's unrealistic for us to think that's the only way. That's just when he parts the sea. It's just when he speaks everything into creation. Do you see his power multiple other ways through scripture? Oftentimes what you see is through his weakness, through our weaknesses, God makes his power known. Think about Paul. We did the whole book of Acts uh, series. Remember Paul? Paul wasn't one that was calming storms. Remember Paul was the one that was shipwrecked. He was the one that would get beaten. He's the one that would get stoned and left for dead and then God would appear to him and say, hey, just stay faithful, be faithful. He's the one who says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I despaired of life itself, and it was in his weaknesses that Christ was made known. And so then you think about, well, what are some, some circumstances? And then you start going into our individual lives, and how many people here, we have these weaknesses. Guess what? Jesus has authority over your depression, and over your anxiety, and over your diseases, and over your marital difficulties, and over all the stuff that's taking place in our lives. And oftentimes we want him to change the circumstances, and God's using those circumstances to change us. That's life change. It's in our weaknesses that then he's made known. And reflect on that for us as corporately as a church. And I think about what's going on with our building situation. Um, God's done some amazing things um, with our building situation. First of all, your generosity. We raised enough money to purchase land with the first capital campaign that we did. It was called TBI. We did several years ago. And uh, purchased some land off of Glenwood Avenue, for those of you who are unaware of that. Maybe you're new to the church today. And then... Uh, God's done some great stuff in the, in the process, too. You're going to get the book you're going to get. It's going to have uh, drawings in it of some of the building. We're about 95% complete on the drawings. I think we've got a couple pictures. I might even pop up a picture or two here uh, while I'm sharing with you. A couple other updates uh, other than the drawings uh, being up there is that uh, oh, there's a cool lobby. I don't know who those people are. They're probably part of the million that are lost, right? And one of them wears a suit. That's pretty cool. Um, and somebody came straight from the hospital. They got their scrubs on. Got it. But you get a glimpse of that, and we'll show you some of those pictures in there. The drawings are almost done. Uh, we were officially approved for our financing um, on the project, which is great. You know, we had been for a while giving paperwork back and forth to different financial institutions. We've officially been approved um, for the financing that we needed for the project, and our plan was to break ground this past summer. 
However, we've hit a delay, and the delay is something that we were assured wouldn't be a problem, which is a sewer easement. Some of you are on the prayer team, and you already know all this information. Uh, Vanessa Bauman leads up a, a team of folks that are praying for this regularly. If you want to be on that team, you can be uh, on that team by just taking your connection card today and saying, I want to be on the building prayer team. Um, but they've been praying about <clears throat> a situation that's really beyond our control. Uh, we've got people that are working on it on a regular basis. Um, Alan Folkrod, Vern Kivett, and our executive pastor, John Cullen, working um, sometimes on a daily basis on this situation where really it's uh, something that some other folks will need to decide. We've got some neighbors that own some property around us, so the city of Raleigh and Durham, um, because of where we're at, um, both could have some impact in, in that, but um, it's delayed our project. And I'll tell you from a, a human perspective, from my perspective, it's frustrating. Like, I don't, I don't want to, we just moved our offices again. I don't want to move our offices again. It's, that's not fun to move your offices. Um, but I know that God has a plan in it. And so I look at it and think where we're at for our offices by now, right now, by the way, it used to be a shady nightclub from what we were told. Um, in fact, a strip club was one story that I've been told. And the guy who owns uh, Westgate Jeep over on uh, Westgate Road, and, and you can see it from Glenwood Avenue, he bought this building to get them out of there. Now a church is meeting there. And I think how ironic for, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, so I'm complaining, like I'm upset and frustrated, but at the same time, we pray about having a city redeemed, and then we put a church in a place that was a strip club, and oh, maybe you know what you're doing, Lord. Um, but it's still, you know, I want to move into the building. Like, I want things to go smooth, and well, the building's not our vision. It's just a tool so that we can facilitate more lives being changed. But maybe God wants to change us in the process more. So I don't know. But what I do is I invite you to pray. And so pray about this easement. It's a sewer easement. Um, if you want to talk to somebody about it, you can talk to one of those three guys I mentioned, Alan, Vern, or John. Uh, they know more details um, and know more of the expertise of that than I know. But um, really what it comes down to is we need to be praying and pray that God puts himself on display. You know, oftentimes you hear these, these catchy little phrases that God uses our problems as his platform, uses our obstacles as his opportunities, and he may be doing that. I don't know what he's doing. But we're praying that God puts his power on display. That he does something that makes it clear that he's the one that's leading us and that he does something only he can do. Because that's what he's been doing in the lives of people. Why, why not let us see that in some of those circumstances? And so that's what we're praying. But not only does God change lives, and not only does he use the Great Commission promise of all authority to give us great confidence, but it also should mean a great commitment from us. A great commission requires a great commitment. And that's the final point. And you think about the commitment that these folks had, these 500 or so folks, I believe maybe it was just 11, but even if you just look at the 11, most of them gave their lives. It was a whole life commitment. And you think about what God's plan is, we're going to talk about going and making disciples and teaching and baptizing and the things that we actually do, there's stuff for us to do in this process. But based on the belief in this first core promise, and then God's going to use, I read one author this week that talked about, he actually uses our words and our deeds to impact eternity. Like, let that sink in for a second. If you ever felt like your life was mundane, or you wondered why you're in the job you're in, or any of those things, God's going to use your words and your life to have eternal impact. That should take and redeem everything that we say and everything we do. It should get new significance to it. The God of the universe, your creator, who hung the earth in place without anything there, on nothing, who declares his glory by the stars, is going to use your words and your deeds. That's his great commission. And so the question for us is, how can we increase our commitment to God's great commission? How do we increase our commitment to his commission, which is going to be different for each one of us? For some of you, it may mean it's time to get on a team. It's time to serve. Some of you have been watching this church thing happen for a while, and you're like, I like this place. It's kind of my place. I got my seat. Maybe you sit in the same place every Sunday. It's time to get out of your seat, get off the bench, get on a team, do something. 
For some people, it might be the light going off for you, where you start to view your workplace as a mission field rather than just a place where you bring an income. For some of you, it might mean going on a mission trip, a short-term trip. For some of you, it might be sending you out. Some people are going to leave. So one of the best ways we're going to reach new people is some of you are going to leave this church. Sounds funny for a pastor to say, right? Some of you are going to go to other places in the world. You might get job transfer to Indiana. You might get called to go like Bill and Judy Grimmie to Panama. Now, do you realize that we, Bill and, we had just asked them to be an elder at our church? And they said, no, I'm leaving. I'm going on a mission field. But we rejoice in that. The Killians, they leave. They go with YWAM, try and reach youth for Christ in, in Panama. And they were serving all over our church. And so who knows? Maybe you're next. Maybe God will send you out. Why not? Why not you? Why wouldn't it be you? I bet there's people here that God's he's working, he's chiseling on you. And some of you, you're going to start praying for your one. Some of you are going to have a one. Some of you are going to add people to that. You're going to say, one person, that's such a low goal. So some of you are going to start praying for more people. What does it look like for you, not the person next to you, not for me, not for us as a church, what does it look like for you to increase your commitment to the Great Commission? If you're not a believer, you can't have a commitment to the Great Commission. You've got to bow your knee to Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. But everybody else, what does it look like? It should mean great confidence. It should mean transformation in your own personal life, not just the lives of those you come into contact with, but in yours. Every disciple is being changed in a great commitment. I shared with you about Danny at the beginning of the service, and uh, many of you know he passed away a few weeks ago, and uh, he's doing stuff we can't imagine in heaven. Who knows what that's like? You read the book of Revelation here, no crying and no pain and some of the stuff that's said there. And uh, I imagine what he's doing, he's probably... He was called the hatchet. Some of you don't know that when he's played basketball. I bet he's following people like crazy and there are no calls in heaven. And uh, the thing about Danny was he was a guy that lived out the Great Commission. Um, even the last few years of his life, he was getting dialysis three times a week. He was still leading two Bible studies, one in Chapel Hill. Praise God for that. Somebody was reaching Chapel Hill, not us. And uh, he was leading one here in, in Raleigh. But it wasn't uh, just Bible study, like, so you'll know John 3.16 or Matthew 28, uh, 16 through 20. He wanted guys to go out and do this stuff. He wanted to live it out. And then what happened when he died is you started to realize he left a legacy, and the legacy was all the lives of the different people that he impacted. And so those people started coming around, and they started telling that story. He was a guy who really lived it out. And so it wasn't just a thing for his church to do. It was something that he did, which should be true of every elder in our church, which then should be true of every member in our church, it should be true of every follower of Jesus Christ, because this is central to every life of every follower of Jesus Christ. That's all will be central in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at some verses that for some of us can be very familiar. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes to our own lives and to these verses and what you call us to. And God, I pray that you would open our hearts to how you want us to take new steps of faith. What is it you desire for us to do to increase our commitment to your great commission. God, we know it's an impossible commission. We know there's no way we can reach even this city, much less the entire world, but you have given us the power. You are the one that does the work. You came and you have all authority in heaven and earth. And God, I pray that you give us great confidence in that promise and we give, give us great confidence in you and we wouldn't trust in our own resources and we wouldn't trust in our circumstances. We wouldn't trust in ourselves and our own intellect and our own flesh and our own power, but we trust in you and that you would change not just other people's lives but ours. In Jesus' name I pray.